2: Hello, and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. My name is Kev Lotchin. I'm joined today by news editor Elizabeth Pearson. Hello. Editor assistant Ian Todd. Hello. And for the first time, editor Chris Bramley. Hello. Very deep there, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it feels like these are getting closer and closer together.
3: Yes it's fine all
2: the science it's is happening yes. we've actually got a lot to talk about so we're going to crack straight on um coming up later in the show we are going to be playing news bingo we're going to hear from the sky night tv shows pete lawrence with some more practical observing advice and ian you've done this month's interview all i've got on my notes is it's beth healy a doctor who worked for ESA in antarctica
0: that's right i mean should i introduce it now do you want, me to, do you want to let you know now or do you want me to keep you in suspense until later on uh, give me a little bit of self. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, uh, Beth Heal is basically a, a medical doctor who's been working for ESA uh, in the Antarctica, um, carrying out research to basically uh, prepare for future missions to Mars, see, seeing how harsh environments and isolation... Um, there, the effect that that has on on the human body and mind. Awesome! We'll find
2: out more about that a bit later on. Um, but first, we'll jump straight into the news. And possibly the biggest story this month is Juno has finally reached Jupiter. Yeah,
3: Juno.
0: <laughs> After what was it? Five years? It's been roughly. I think it was yeah. it was
3: a little bit shy, but yeah, it launched in 2011. A long time, didn't it? Yeah. yeah,
0: three yeah. three billion kilometers. I think was the was the total journey journey distance. Really? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it it's was a pretty long haul. Yeah. yeah. It had like a, a flyby around Earth in 2013, which I think, I assume it was one of those flybys to kind of...
3: Pick up speed. Pick up yeah, up speed. Pick up speed. Yeah, yes, it was. Yeah. Gravity yeah. assist. Yes. That's yeah, what that's call
0: right. in, in the business. Yes. The business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: So, Juno's there. It's going to stay for around 20 months, 37 right. orbits. Yes, yeah. hopefully... Hopefully, yeah.
3: well, it's because the reason why that it it has to do these like huge looping orbits because of of Jupiter's radiation,
2: which is a little bit murderous,
3: it, it, just a little bit, yeah. just a little bit. There's a reason we've only sent two probes to Jupiter. I think uh, Voyager and Galileo. Because they get fried. <laughs> yes, because they get fried. Does <laughs> Voyager
2: count? Because that was only really a fly by. <laughs> <It>
3: counts. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, yeah. So it's it's. 37 is what they're aiming for and what they reckon they can get out of it, yes.
2: And so, but Galileo, when it was there, it found that there was that little gap between the kind of radiation belts of Jupiter and the planet itself. So it's going to be zipping through those. So yes. Hopefully, yeah. it's not going to... Um, break too quickly <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes they 've spent a lot of time and a lot of effort to make sure that it doesn 't just immediately die because that would be bad
2: they 've encased
4: um, all the all the really delicate most delicate instruments in a, in a titanium um,
2: box, basically yeah to protect to protect it all from the from the kind of... It's titanium you know, kind of radiation reducing. I mean, you know it's lead. Uh, yeah. Well, lead's a little bit, little bit heavy.
3: Yeah, it's, um, it's one know, of those and, things and that premium, I that seem I to remember they said with the, the radiation... I think they call it the radiation vault. Yes, that's um, it. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. has all of the uh, electronics in. It was basically, that's one of the few times when you don't skimp because of weight. <laughs> you yes. make sure that yeah. it, the, the radiation is not going to get through.
0: Yeah, God, I, I think that's yeah. kind of kind of what they're doing now until October. I think like official science collection doesn't start until October of this mm. year. Um, but they're already kind of carrying out research about its magnetosphere. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's... Uh, I think it was uh, Scott Bolton, the uh, principal investigator, had kind of said that that um, actually he's, he said something quite funny because it was it re- reached orbit in the Fourth of July, and he said it was the first ever Fourth of July he'd spent in a windowless room. But yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it's Independence obviously, obviously yeah. in America. Yeah. But uh, he didn't mind. He, he uh, said it was worth it. Worth it for oh, the science. Yes. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so it's going to be measuring Jupiter's gravity and magnetic fields. That's mm-hmm. right, isn't it? Yes. yes. Yep. Yeah. It's um, going
4: to. I think it's going to try and establish what what it's made of as well composition of of the of the stuff it below the clouds.
3: Yes, it's basically, it's going to be the first mission to really try to get to grips with what's going on. But I think we can see about 100 kilometres down into Jupiter's gas layer at the moment. Um, And this will be hopefully going right down into the core and seeing what's going on there.
2: Do we have any sensible ideas about what that core is already? Is it all conjecture?
3: There is, there's quite a few um, options. The, I think the one that, Generally, as the most support behind it is uh, an iron core um, around which, because it's got this huge magnetic field, so there must be something creating the magnetic field and the way that we know mostly is is an iron core. Um, There have been some various weird ideas by things like metallic hydrogen, Mm. which is when you get hydrogen under a lot of pressure and at really high temperatures, it starts... Acting a bit weird, um, as things do under right. lots of pressure mm. and temperature, um, and acts more like a metal than a gas. Um, but it's also a liquid. But it's also a liquid. It's just weird. Yes. Isn't it? Yeah. So basically, yeah. they need to work out: is is it a solid core? Is it a liquid core? What what the heck's going on there? Is
2: it a magic eight ball?
3: Is it a magic eight ball? Go.
2: Um, do you know? So the other thing that's going to be doing, Juno um, is going to be looping over the poles, yes, as well. So it's going to be able to check out the Jovian aurora.
3: Yes, that's one of the big things they're looking at.
2: Um, so just before we kind of came on, Hubble have published, a Hubble Space Telescope, the scientists behind the Hubble Space Telescope <laughs> have published a new photo of Jupiter's aurora, and they're astounding. Mm. They are so strong, and they're massive. Mm. They're huge, aren't they? They're
4: about a thousand times bigger than um, yeah. displays on Earth, aren't they?
3: They are, however, generally, um, if, you, if you went to Jupiter to try and, and go and, and see the aurora, you might be a bit disappointed, because they tend to be in the ultraviolet, yes. so you will not see yeah. anything. flash so, yeah. a I know. Um, if you if you took a, a tourist trip to Jupiter,
2: have you also been uh, keeping up with Gina as well? That was the other thing I wanted to bring up about Gina.
3: That's the one that's uh, with all the connections with the amateur astronomers. Yeah, it's yes. the uh, yeah. the
2: visible camera, but um, it's the NASA are using amateur info to pick Targets for the genocam later on the mission when yeah. it goes from its kind of high orbit at the moment, I think it's 50 days it takes at the moment, roughly, mm. and when it goes to the 14 day science orbits. But right now, you can uh, submit telescope images to NASA, and yeah. right now, you can look at them and kind of click on those images and kind of like, oh, that looks interesting, that interesting. go look yeah. at this. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the debate's open, and um, this is kind of it's very interesting
4: the way that they're crowdsourcing the. Um, you know, they're they're kind of targets like that. And there's a there's quite. A, I was looking at it earlier. There's quite a quite a um, uh, lively discussion going on. It's at very local. active. Yeah, isn't it? it's very active. I d- yeah. I yeah. just
3: really love the fact that they've got like this billion dollar telescope, and they've got all of these other like massive observatories and stuff. And actually, the best ones for observing the planets are quite often mm. people in their back gardens mm, um, cool. Cool. with with their equipment that they you just use because they love the astronomy.
4: It's fantastic, yeah. It's really good, and it just shows, yeah, there is a, there is a place for for people like that, astronomers, um, in the kind of you know cutting edge science, which is really really exciting. Mm.
0: But speaking about the the JunoCam, the um, what are the images that we're going to get back from Jupiter, Jupiter going to be like? Because we've 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 kind of been spoiled over the past few years, you know, images of of Ceres and Saturn and, and Mars. Um, mm. But are we are we going to get anything that? That detailed, that kind of crisp and clear.
3: Um, G- oh, yeah. yeah, I think yeah. yeah. JunoCam is going to be doing because it's it's going to be getting right up close and personal with mm. um, Jupiter, and and Juno or JunoCam will get some some images from that. Um, the kind of really big scientific data that they're trying to get with Juno is going to be things like a gravitational map of the planet and a magnetic map of the planet, which are incredibly, incredibly important if you're a scientist, but are not going to be, you know, beautiful pictures like you'd get Uh, from Hubble. uh, Um, uh. Hopefully there'll be some cool shots of the aurora, though, Mm, um, even if uh. it is in the UV.
4: (laughs) But they will be able to kind of transpose that data to a... Presentable format yeah. that, that that makes sense to non-scientists. And mm-hmm. You don't need to have a PhD to kind of make sense of a of a spreadsheet or whatever.
3: Yeah, because
4: yeah. um, they do they do they do that quite regularly, don't they? With um, you know, kind of false colour maps and mm. and things like that. So yeah. I think I think we're in for some we're in for some treats yeah. when the science starts coming in in uh, in October. Yeah, yeah.
3: hopefully we'll yeah. start be able to get sort of some structural. Di- diagrams of, of what it's actually like if you go like if you cut a slice through Jupiter, what would we look like?
0: And what that about the awesome. the um, uh, great red spot as well? You know, potentially.
3: Yeah, that's, yes. that's, that's, that's nice one of the big. Of that. Yeah, I
0: might
4: find out why
0: why it's shrinking.
4: Exactly.
2: Um, yeah, why it sometimes okay, yeah. goes a bit grey. Yes. And yeah, yeah.
3: why it's why it's great and why it's red, which are two of yeah. the biggest problems, yes, um, mysteries with the great yeah. red spot. <laughs>
2: So many questions. <laughs> so we should probably move on. I've got some more for you. Mm.
3: Is it that time again?
2: It's that time again. It's it really time is. for news bingo. Yay. So I
3: feel like there should be a jingle. I'm not going to make one up.
2: <laughs> Please do. Please bring a little, uh, like a little Christmas jingle <laughs> bell. We're totally doing that next time, right? So news bingo is where I'm going to read you out a handful of questions I got for you this month, based on recent astronomical news stories, and you have to guess what the big news I'm talking about is. Now, hmm. you've Ian, as you've kind of won one a piece, Chris this is your right. first first one. How are you feeling? Clark's knuckles, come on, <laughs> warm up. Um, although Ian's the who's got a perfect run. Oh, oh was yeah, that last you, time? You, yeah, you got a perfect score
3: last time. Three out of three. No yeah. pressure.
2: Oh, Super yeah. pressure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so let's get straight on it. So first one: What will Mars gain in the distant future that recent research suggests it has lost once already? Oh. Okay. And these are all new stories that have come up in the past month mm. and more than likely you've seen them mm. So you have pads in front of you, of course, yeah. so you mm, can mm. Uh, write this down without shouting it out and else. So please play along at home <laughs> 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 Right, I see pens have stopped scratching. Hit me. Uh, rings?
3: Oh yeah, yeah. That that makes sense.
0: <laughs> Rings, is it? Oh, I yeah. thought it was a magnetic field. So the kind of yeah, one of one of two two main theories as to how Mars got its two moons. The one is that it kind of captured an, an, a passing asteroid, uh, and the other is that um, a massive impact created a ring of debris, which eventually resulted in Phobos and Deimos, the two moons. And mm-hmm. because they are spiralling inward they might crash-land on Mars and create rings again.
2: Yeah, it's, mm. that's basically it, yeah. Um, so these two hypotheses have been knocking around for a while, and, we weren't, you know, so Phobos, the larger of the two, is spiralling towards the red planet and will eventually be torn asunder by this tidal forces. So that's where the later ring will come from. The reason we've suddenly thought um, that it might have lost a ring as opposed to being the capture, is uh, a new simulation. And it's to do with how fast Mars was spinning when the moons are formed So Earth. Because this is this is a big stumbling block that um, both Earth and Mars, if Mars had the kind of impact model, why has it got those two moons that are both so weird when we've got one? Mm. Mm. And it's to do with rotational speed. So uh, yeah. these researchers said that Earth was spinning so fast at the point where uh, we got our moon that not a single day was four hours. Which is not enough time to sleep, quite frankly, <laughs> and uh, so it just had the effect. An our moon kind of got pushed out far enough away; that it became entirely locked. But Mars is spinning much so, so its ring consists the Phobos and several smaller moons. Now, in time, all those small moons have disappeared; they, you know, I assume, crash into the planet. Phobos is just the one in the future who will do. So, Deimos, this is why I said you kind of had it right. Um, won't actually crash into the planet. Okay, it's too far away. It's uh. eventually going to spin off. And like be a, a kind of a sailor amongst the stars. Well, oh, so it nice. just turned back into a large asteroid. Then
3: do like do I remember reading that there there was signs of of stress on Phobos, um, which uh, it basically looked like it was it was on the cusp of falling apart. Is on the cusp being, you know, several thousand years. Phobos
2: is the one if I'm. This is what we're thinking of, where it's got stress factors, so they think it might be a kind of a, like a hollow shell, yeah. kind of including a bunch of rubble, and then,
3: yes. it, it, It's kind of all a bit...
2: It's a jangly bag of marbles, Yeah, suppose,
3: it's, it's held together with with hope. <laughs> 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 and gravity. Um.
2: Right, so, uh, that was just one for you, wasn't it, Ian? Uh, yeah. Well Go done. It's a good start. He's on, the, he's on his winning run again. Um, right, so, second one. What astronomers discovered in the last month that suggests that planets in habitable zones could be less habitable than we once thought? Okay. And think within the solar system, just to kind of give you an angle. Mm. Well, I can see what Ezra's writing, she's straight on it. And in fact, she's writing an essay. <laughs> mm.
3: I wrote six words.
0: <laughs> Your pen is very scratchy. <laughs> <laughs> Ian's stuck. Yeah, I'm, I'm stuck. Chris, I'm stumped. Um,
4: I said I've written down superheated atmospheres. <laughs> I don't really know whether that was As discovered let, in the past month. Let's go for us.
3: I, I think they discovered a really, really st- electric, uh, really strong electric field around Venus.
2: Absolutely.
3: Um, and that was, was basically stripping out all of the oxygen from the atmosphere. Um, yeah. Yes. And they think that's one of the reasons why Venus ended up the wonderful, lovely hothouse that it yeah. is today. <laughs>
2: Absolutely. I mean, the solar wind can do that as well. And they, they thought it was the solar wind that was kind of eroding the rest of the oxygen uh, mm. atoms away. But, and this is from uh, Glenn Collinson of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, who says, We never dreamt an electric wind could be so powerful. We don't know why it is so much stronger at Venus than Earth but we think it might have something to do with Venus being closer to the sun and the ultraviolet sunlight being twice as bright. Mm. And he kind of basically goes on to infer that even if the planet's in a habit zone, we expect that water might exist. It could depend on the star mm. that changes how... How yeah. much oxygen the planet can retain.
3: Yeah, it's it's it sort of as as time goes on and we get a slightly better idea of how how planetary systems and atmospheres work, it does seem that, that habitable zone is is shrinking a little bit. But um yeah, it, it seems like there's going to be a lot of things that we have to consider before we send off a probe to, to Earth 2.0. If we can find Earth 2.0. If we can find two, Earth 2.0.
2: What have we found? Like anything that's vaguely close that we can say with any surety? Things um, that look right, but things that we can say with surety.
3: Um, the, the big problem with with the Earth 2.0 thing is it's. Really hard <laughs> to find things that are that size and at that distance um, mm. because it's too far away, really, to do transiting. It's too small to do transiting. Doesn't make the star wobble enough, and um. so they're getting better uh, and kind of like narrowing it in on those. But yeah, at the moment, we're a bit tricky to see. Cool.
2: All right. So, our, and finally, question, which isn't quite as uh, off base as the last two. Who or what is RR two four five?
3: Sorry, what? R two
2: four o five. R R two four five.
3: Why do astronomers incapable of naming things?
2: <laughs> because I don't know. It yes. Ended up being either... Because there's
3: about seven million things to name. That's why. Mm.
2: <laughs> Too many things. <laughs> Running out of mythology. <laughs> Risk of Rocky McRocky face.
3: <laughs> Is that the moon of Planet E McPlanet face? <sighs>
2: Quite so. Two four five. I can't believe this has stumped you all so much.
0: Yeah.
2: <clears throat> right, we best crack on because it's an awkward period of
0: science.
3: Yes, okay.
0: <laughs> I I remembered that that name, and I, I can't I can't work out whether or not my answer is correct, but is it is it the newly discovered candidate for a new dwarf planet in the Kuiper Belt? It is. Uh- uh- Uh,
4: very
2: good, very good. So this is our new celebrity, the latest member of the solar system, as you said, a dwarf planet in the Kuiper Belt. Do you know anything about it more? Um. (laughs) 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 Look how quickly knowledge comes in and out. It's 700 kilometers in diameter on a massive elliptical orbit, which takes about... Coincidentally, 700 years. That's right, yeah. Um, which, and that takes it 120 times farther out from the sun than Earth is, but will eventually bring it within 34 AU, which is inside the mean orbit of Pluto. And it's coming towards us, so it should reach perihelion in 2096. So our views of it hopefully are going to get better and find out what it is. But, um, this is like uh, one of the things that was dug up out of the outer solar system's origin survey Which has been taken in Kea in Hawaii, and it's the mm-hmm, first yeah. time they found the dwarf planet and have done like 500 objects yeah, or yeah. plus in the Kuiper belt well, because we're well, never gonna find all the objects in the Kuiper belt yeah. Well, maybe we will, but there's so many. Yeah, uh, but this is the first one that's dwarf planet size Although, They don't know quite so much about it. I mean there's a quote from Michelle Bannister from the University of Victoria in British Columbia who worked on the study, and she said, it's either small and bright or large and dull. <laughs> uh, so. One or the other. There was actually a bonus point in this. I thought RR245, someone might think it was a droid from the Star Wars. I there. did, I did put
3: Mars Drone because yeah. I thought it might be some reference to that, but no, okay, carry on. <laughs>
2: um, th- that's a really low scoring thing, because there's only three this month, so it's it a tie. Was, it was hard. <laughs> a tie. It's a tie between Ian and Ez. No yeah. beginner's luck for me. Won it <laughs> next time, Chris. Yes, next time.
0: Next time. I thought Ian got two. Yeah, he got two. Kev, did you get two? two? You got yeah. Mars's rings and the dwarf planet.
2: Oh, sorry. You're quite right. It is Ian. You
0: did as win. As
3: much as I hate Yay. to concede defeat. Thanks very much. He yes. did beat me.
2: Okay. So I'll two, get you next to time, Todd. <laughs> Right, we best move on to something a bit more practical. Here is Pete Lawrence from the Sky Night TV show who's going to be telling us how you can see the Perseid meteor shower this month.
5: The Perseid meteor shower is probably one of the most popular meteor showers of the year. And the reason for this is that at its peak, it shows a good number of meteor streaks. And also it occurs at a time of the year when it's reasonably warm. Well, as warm as a British summer can ever get. Now to observe it, you don't need any specialist equipment at all, just your eyes and preferably something to make you comfortable outside like a sun lounger or a deck chair or something which will allow you to look up at a height of about 60 degrees in the sky where you can lie down for an extended period of time and just take in the view. You need to find a location which is away from any stray lights. And before you actually do your main meteor watch you need to be outside for at least 20 minutes in darkness to allow your eyes to properly dark adapt. Once you're ready then look up as I said about 60 degrees two-thirds of the way up the sky. The direction doesn't really matter. Meteor streaks can occur anywhere but the common advice is to look about 40 to 60 degrees either side of the meteor radiant. Now, my recommendation would be to look somewhere to the east round to the south on the nights around the maximum activity. And this year maximum occurs on the 12th of August actually it occurs during the day in uh, all the expectation is that it's going to occur during the day so the best nights to look for perseid activity will be the 11th 12th and the 12th 13th But the shower is actually active from the 23rd of July through to the 23rd of August. You could see a meteor associated with the Persid meteor stream at any time along those dates or between those dates. Now the meteor shower itself should go up to what's known as the zenithal hourly rate of about 150 meteors per hour. That's the prediction for this year. But that doesn't mean that's how many meteors you're going to see. The zenithal hourly rate or ZHR is the normalized optimum rate that you can see. If you could see the entire sky in one go the sky was perfectly clear and the radiant, the point where the meteors associated with the shower appear to come from, was directly overhead. Now we're unlikely to be able to satisfy any of those criteria so the actual visual rate will be much lower. Typically somewhere between 20 to 50 meters per hour but that's still a good number of meteors to spot. If you see a streak rushing across the sky don't assume it's going to be a Perseid. It could belong to another shower or it could be a random meteor known as a sporadic meteor. To qualify as a Perseid, you need to trace the trail back and the trail needs to go through the meteor radiant. If that doesn't happen, it's not a Perseid meteor. What time should you observe? Well, typically the best time to observe is from midnight universal time through to dawn. So 1 a.m. BST through to dawn. That's because the earth will have turned. So we're hitting the meteoroids head on and we get brighter collisions. So we should be able to see those meteors much clearer. So, good luck with your Meteor Watch this year, and fingers crossed that we get some spectacular Pursid meteors.
0: There's been a lot of talk um, over the past few years about, about humans travelling to Mars, um, but one of the problems, I suppose, is that we still aren't really sure the effect that such a long journey would have on the, on the human body and mind. Um, so for this episode, I was speaking to uh, Dr. Beth Healy, who's a medical doctor who um, spent a year uh, in Antarctica at the Con- Concordia Research Station, working for ESA. Uh, and basically her her purpose was to see how the, the harsh environment affects um, human health and behaviour uh, in preparation for, for potential future journeys to Mars. Uh, and I started off by asking her how she got involved in the mission.
1: I mean, I've worked as part of medical and logistical support teams for a number of expeditions and sort of endurance races, um, which got me really interested in working in extreme environments and also extreme environment physiology. Um, when I was a medical student, I had the chance to go to the European Astronaut Centre as well and do a space medicine course with ESA. And um, so I knew that I was really interested in space medicine. And so when the opportunity for the job in Antarctica came up, I just really jumped at the chance.
0: Mm-hmm. And so w- what was the purpose of the mission? How was it? How was it kind of sold to you?
1: The purpose of the mission is to look at the effects of the isolation on the crew. So you're looking towards long-duration spaceflight missions, um, because in Antarctica during the long polar winter, um, you've got nine months where the crew are completely isolated, and so we're looking at the effects of that in terms of the physiology and psychology of the crew.
0: Mm. So uh, was that solely it? It, it? it was kind of the uh, psychological aspects. I mean, how, how did you how did you measure this? How did how, how did you actually carry out your your research?
1: Well, there's lots of reasons why Concordia is a great platform for space research and it's not just the isolation. So, the isolation is the one thing that Concordia really does have um, compared to other environments uh, which we use for the research. But it also has lots of other aspects. So, for example, we've got the, um, the sort of 100 days where you don't see the sunlight. So um, we look at the effects of that on the crew and use of artificial lighting for long periods of time as well. Um, You're also at altitude at Concordia, so you've got chronic low-level hypoxia. Uh, It's also an international base, so you've got an international crew working there with lots of different languages, as you would on a space station. And so there's lots of different similarities between living on a base like Concordia and also going on a long-duration space flight mission.
0: Hmm. So what was your daily
1: routine like? Uh, So from day to day it was quite varied Um, so the experiments that we were doing sometimes they were more busy than others so we had different points throughout the winter where there was a lot more data collection Um, but on a day-to-day basis um, I'd spend sort of around lunchtime in my lab um, the crew would come on a daily basis to have some measurements taken Um, and so that um, was the main part of my day but um, of course, we're doing analysis and data transfer in the afternoons, um, and there's lots of other roles as well as working on the ESA research. So every crew member on the base gets involved with all sorts of different aspects of um, crew life. So um, whether it's from cooking to cleaning to helping move snow um, and all those those different things, we're also um, part of lots of different teams. So you learn how to be part of a fire team and. Um, Vice versa, other people are taught how to be part of the medical rescue team. So it really is quite a busy time to be at Concordia. Mm.
0: So how many people were in your team, uh, uh, including you?
1: We were a crew of 13 people and it's about a 50-50 split between scientific and technical staff. Ah,
0: Okay. So did did you kind of have to um, see them on on a regular basis in in order to kind of carry out the measurements and and? and, and you know, an, analyse how they were coping with in these situations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, generally, people come to the lab once a week um, to take measurements, um, but there were certain times through the overwinter period where we were doing a lot more research than that so... We take a lot more data, um, but these were just at set points throughout the mission. Um, But we're collecting data all the time. So to give you an example, we're wearing activity watches, and these not only measured sort of our general activity um, measurements, but also our sleep-wake cycle. And they also actually integrate interacted with different members of the crew so to give you an example my watch would interact with your watch and it would let us know how much time we're spending together and where we're spending that time and the idea of that is that we can look to see where people are spending their time so if they're choosing to be in social or more isolated environments and really critical time points in the mission where crew are more likely to be isolating themselves um, it also looked at crew dynamics and how that was changing, the formation of subgroups, and any sort of big arguments or splits within the group during the winter time.
0: Hmm. Just um, talking about isolation, there. I mean, was that a, a, a worry for you? Whenever you were uh, offered the post, you must have had had a few kind of doubts and, and fears about the prospect of spending uh, time in such an isolated place.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, that was the the biggest worry before going down there. And I think it probably was for most people. And we did lots of training before we went to help us prepare for that. So, um, as a crew, we went to the European Astronauts Center and had what they call human behavior and performance training. And that was aimed at preparing the crew psychologically um, for that kind of pressure so that we could work together well as a team. So, it's all sort of team behavior. Um, Training, but yeah, certainly knowing that you're going to be isolated like that does does um, does make you worry a bit. Mm.
0: So, what were your biggest challenges when you were actually living there?
1: Um, I guess I mean, of course, it's sort of missing home, missing friends, family, avocado, um, things (laughs) like mango as well. It's kind of Um, also actually Concordia has a water recycling system. It's actually one of the prototypes for the one that we use on the International Space Station. Um, And so we have to use certain products in the shower so you weren't allowed to have shampoo or conditioner for an entire year, which was a bit of a struggle. So uh, there's lots of things. Um, I guess the biggest thing for me was the... um, the long polar night. so when we had 100 days without seeing the sunlight and I think probably the anticipation of that was worse than the actual reality so um, when I first went down to Concordia I heard all these sort of horrendous stories about what was going to happen to us as a crew um, when we lost the sun and fortunately um, not many not many of them came true but um, I think it was that period and sort of the anticipation of what it's going to be like down there uh,
0: But not now that the, um, the emission has ended you must still will be carrying on analysing the data and and doing work that's relevant to your mission how has your your work continued since coming back to Europe and also how will your research actually be uh, used by, by ESA
1: this a really exciting time for us, so a lot of the data is only just getting back into Europe at the moment, so it's a long journey for all, all the samples and everything to come back, and they've arrived um, quite a bit later than me, um, so it's really going to be quite a busy time now with all the different teams analysing the different data sets, um, and really, really quite exciting. Um, in terms of our crew, we've just been at the European Astronaut Centre um, and we had the sort of final post-mission uh, measurements taken to see how we've sort of re-acclimatised being back in um, sort of the real world as it is. Uh, so that, that was yeah, just a few weeks ago that we were doing that and that was really sort of the end of the mission for us as a crew. And then, over the next few months, and in some cases, years, because some of the experiments which I was doing are going to have been carried on this year at Concordia. so we're sort of waiting for some of their data. um so they'll be published over the next couple of years. Um so really excited to see what see what we find mm.
0: will you will you continue working with ESA for the foreseeable future or or was this has has your work with ESA come come to end? Yes.
1: So for the moment, um, after the mission, that's sort of officially the end of my time working with ESA, although this summer we're doing an outreach tour called White Space, which is going to events and shows and um, conferences this summer. So I'm I'm doing that. And then after that, I'm not quite sure.
0: But you'll still be able to keep keep an eye on the the International Space Station and and, and hopefully maybe you'll you'll recognise some some signs of, of your work actually being implemented?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's really exciting. One of Already one of the um, experiments that we were doing, it was a cognition test, which they were also um, doing up on the International Space Station at the same time. So that was um, all in the research phase is now actually going to be implemented into normal astronaut routine in just a couple of months. So already we start to see um, things happening, which is a result of the research that we're doing down there, which is really exciting. Um, and all the, a lot of the research as well, it's not just um, going to benefit astronauts. So, um, for example, looking at the effects of um, use of artificial light on eyesight um, benefits a wide range of people. For example, people working in factories or on night shifts um, where they're subjected to similar conditions too.
0: Brilliant. Well, it uh, must be very, very rewarding to to see all, all, all your hard work finally paying off Um but yeah, thanks, thanks very much for, for talking to me, Beth. It's been really interesting hearing, hearing about your exploits.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, no problem. It's been a pleasure.
2: Right, we should probably tell you what's coming up in the next issue of BBC Sky Night magazine. We're going to be uh, revisiting past missions to Venus and exploring the ones already been planned for the future. Because it's summer, not that you might be able to tell given the weather we're (laughs) having at the moment, we're going to be talking about how to image the sun in three wavelengths, in white light, in hydrogen alpha, which has a kind of ruddy hue, and in calcium K, which shows up purple. Um, In the same theme, we've got a guide to different types of astronomical filters used for observing, and we review a standalone CCD camera. Now, did any of you actually see that when it came into the office? I had a look at it, yeah. It's yeah, a thing it's quite, of beauty. It's, it? it's um, yeah. But this comes with an optional touchscreen, and it works control applications internal. So actually... Yeah. You don't need, don't elaps- need a yeah. You don't need a computer. You don't need a laptop with it. It's, it's, it really frees, up, um, frees you up for travel. It, it's an interesting proposition. Pete Lawrence reviews that for us in this issue. Um, also, and in the print edition, we've got a series of free postcards to accompany our feature on the future of solar system adventure holidays. Mm-hmm. Now... If you could go anywhere in the solar system on a venture holiday, where would you go? Triton. Really? Yeah. Why?
3: Cryovolcanoes. It's like volcanoes, oh. but cold. And it's like, because I, I, I like the cold and I like snow. Admittedly, probably not the minus however many hundred it is on Triton, but still. I'm
2: really impressed because I figured the first thing out of someone's mouth was going to be Saturn. Because of oh, the rings, rings
3: and, and rings, that wow yes.
0: factor, for when you look through a telescope, <laughs> yeah. Um, like I just, I thought that might be a sharp one. Mm, if it was possible, I'd like to go to Mars and hang out with Curiosity. <laughs> oh, that's nice. That's nice. <laughs> I'm, not, I, I'm not sure he'd be much fun, but, <laughs> but, you, but we could just walk along. Do you just of, imagine, like to see Short Circuit as a child, and then <laughs> <laughs> go, Oh, I know. Oh, it'd be really great. What, is what? I not like that? Yeah. <laughs> what?
3: Curiosity is one of those ones. In fact, most of the Mars rovers, they they do have that sort of very anthropomorphic thing because they they tend to have, like, a camera yeah. which looks like a big head and it's looking around. And, yeah, they do always look quite friendly. A bit wally E. That's Yes, I was
0: going to say, it looks exactly like Wally, doesn't it? Could a, could a, a, could a, a Short Circuit slash a Wally-type
2: robot actually get around on Mars with those kind of triangular treads? I don't know if Wally has triangular treads. Actually, Short Circuit definitely did.
3: Yeah, no, moment uh, most most uh rovers have, have some sort of treads because that's that's how you get around.
2: Curious does wheels, isn't
3: it? Curiosity does have wheels, you are quite right. <laughs>
4: <laughs> um, what about you, Chris? You're remarkably <laughs> quiet. I would go to I was just thinking where to go. Out of all the all the wonderful places out there in the solar system, I would I would like I think I'd like to go to Enceladus. actually. Ooh, is just, that uh, because of the prospects of life out uh, there And also the tiger stripes and the, ah, and the yeah and the strange kind of um, plumes of of material gently yeah. gently
2: escaping the uh, the crust of the icy one. crust of the planet excellent um Ian I mentioned very briefly the Venus fish and that ties into our bonus content at this month doesn't
0: it it does yeah uh, I met this this month I managed to speak to uh, dr James green who's the Uh, Director of Planetary Sciences at NASA, just basically kind of getting a rundown. We're we're discussing the the past, present and future of Venus exploration, what NASA's got uh, in store in the future for returning to the planet, and we discussed a bit about kind of past missions and and what we've learned.
2: Excellent. Right then, BBC Sky Night magazine is available in print and in several digital formats. Find out more at skynightmagazine.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. This has been Radio Astronomy, we have been BBC Sky Night Magazine, and we'll be back in a month's time.